Hello, everybody. This is the second episode of the podcast, History Does Us. Uh, Today, we're going to be doing the first part of a three-part series on the Roman Empire. Um, And we're going to be focusing on the beginning of Rome, essentially the founding up until Julius Caesar, when the Roman Republic transitioned from a republic to an empire. Um, So I'm not exactly sure how long this is a going to take me, but obviously it's difficult to cover the entire Roman Empire in just um, one sitting, so I decided to break it up into three parts. I also wanted to break it up into three parts because I also wanted to give myself some more time to line up uh, hopefully some guests and do some interviews, uh, because now I sort of have an idea of how I kind of want to go forward with this podcast. Uh, So... Right now, we're working on getting guests lined up. I also am still looking to add another person. Um, So, yeah, uh, things are going, for the most part, pretty smooth. And now that I have a pretty good idea of uh, where I kind of want to go with this podcast, uh, we're just going to keep going. And I really can't wait to do this um, three-part series on the Roman Empire. It's lots of interesting history, and I think there's a lot of connections to... You know, today, because a lot of governments are modeled after the Roman Empire or Roman in general, uh, a lot of cultural stuff is modeled after them. Their military was light years ahead of what anyone else was doing, really, um, at the height of when they were having their Pax Romana, which was essentially called Roman peace, when they pretty much had control of, you know, the southern half of what is now Great Britain, all the way to pretty much uh, Mesopotamia, which is modern-day Iraq. Um, But first, we have to go all the way back to almost 700 BC, which is 700 years before Christ was dated to be born. And now there's a lot of myths surrounding the actual founding of Rome. The most popular one is obviously with uh, Romulus and Remus, and this kind of comes from Greek Greek origin. And originally, these sons were originally born because they were twins. Um, And eventually, they were banned by the river Tiber, which is also in Italy. Um, And then they were nurtured by a she-wolf until a shepherd named Faustulus um, found the boys and took them on. Eventually, they became adults, um, and they wanted to establish a city. But uh, they arrived at Rome. Obviously, Rome is the... Uh, city of seven hills uh romulus wanted had the city to be originally found on palatine hill while remus wanted to be on the city of evington hill um and then eventually remus and his followers attacked uh romulus but then romulus killed him and because of this rome got its name and was founded on uh, palatine hill Uh, but that's kind of the mythical story behind it um in reality the actual date is um unknown but for ancient romans the did the city was april 21st and they would annually hold a festival to kind of celebrate the founding um in all likelihood uh the actual history behind the founding of rome most likely would have been people um either migrating from the center of europe obviously there were a ton of tribes there that Um, annually moved from place to place in search of uh, fertile land. Obviously, also the Greeks at this time were sending a lot of um, 
expeditions out into the Mediterranean to establish colonies. Um, and also the Egyptians also were doing this too. So there probably was kind of a colony, not that it was ever original actual Greek uh, colony or a colony of anyone of any specific power, but probably founded by people um, who originally, you know, migrated from elsewhere and eventually the city grew. Um, now the Rome sort of was founded originally as under a king, but then I think, let me find it here real quick. Um, too many notes. Okay. So it was, the city was established in around 700 BC, but it was around 509 BC that the, uh, Rome kind of transitioned to a Republic, uh, cause it was originally a monarchy. So, most uh, modern scholarship thinks, or most like historians think that it was simply just kind of a coup by different family members and that killed the king. Um, there is a myth surrounding it that essentially um, the people sort of rose up and, um, you know, killed the king, but that's most likely not what happened. So after the overthrow of the king, um, there was kind of an establishment of a Roman Senate and they decided to abolish a kingship, um, and they transferred. So essentially, it's a kind of a weird system. So there was a senate, there was a legislator, and then there were two consuls, which would sort of be like the executive branch that we have. And it was kind of created to have equal power. So, like for example, one person wasn't ex uh, representing the executive branch. There were two people. Um, so it was sort of, this system was sort of similar in, to a lot of Greek city states. Um, but most Greek city states were kind of, um, established around sort of a similar system, like with one pure Senate, uh, this system is sort of unique having a monarch and a legislator under it. Um, uh, but it wasn't necessarily a true democracy because obviously, um, at this time, it was really mostly aristocrats and rich people that were able to be in the Senate and influence the Senate. So it sort of works. It's interesting. It sort of worked that people who had the power and the influence could kind of sway the Senate and do different things while, you know, regular people weren't able to do that too much. Um, so around this time, really, uh, Italy was kind of divided into a lot of uh, different tribes uh, to the north of the uh, Romans uh, were, you know, tribal people, specifically Etruscans, uh, the Latins, and the Sabines. Um, so they were kind of all spread out uh, north of Rome. And really from pretty much 509 BC to 387 BC, um, Rome really expanded beyond kind of the city and the surrounding areas up north and to, I believe, the I want to say the east up until the mountains um, that I'm completely blanking on right now. Um, so they defeated the Latin cities in several battles, um, one in 496 BC, the Battle of Lake Regillus, I can't pronounce that, in 496, the Battle of Mount Algidus in 458, and the Battle of Corbio in 446. Um, and eventually they suffered a pretty significant defeat at the Battle of Cremaria in 477. Um, but 
of course, if you learned anything about Rome, they didn't just go away. Eventually, they came back and eventually took the capital city of Vale. Um, but um, for the most part, they did conquer the surrounding area around Rome fairly quickly in around 25 years, which I guess in hindsight is pretty big. So um, really, it wasn't – Rome didn't necessarily expand – beyond you know italy until very very late so really rome spent pretty much from the founding 500 bc almost until 272 bc so almost um 300 years basically of them trying to conquer just the italian peninsula itself but obviously as you were able to expand you were able to add manpower you're able to add different supplies different resources um so really after defeating the Latins and Etruscans, they continued to consolidate. Um, and then um, they were going to wage a campaign against the Semnites around 343 BC, but then the Latins uh, re-rebelled against the empire, or not against the empire, the Republic. And then Rome, of course, had to you know redeploy most of its forces to suppress this rebellion. Um and eventually, at the battles of Vesuvius and Trifanum, the Latins uh, lost and eventually submitted to Roman rule. So after that campaign, the Romans redeployed most of their forces back against the Semite, which was nicknamed the Second Semite War. Um, and really, it for the first couple years, it fluctuated kind of back and forth. Um, eventually, Rome was able to gain the upper hand, um, and pretty much by 305 BC, the Semnites um, conquered the ter territory and began to establish colonies there. Uh, but by 298 BC, just like the Latins, the Semnites rebelled against them um, in what is called the Third Semnite War. Um, following you know, the success of most of this, uh, Rome was able to um, pretty much destroy a you know, a network of rebels, specifically the Latins, the Etruscans, and the Semnites. Um, and with this battle, they did want, the Romans uh, won a significant victory at the Battle of Populonia in 282 BC, um, which pretty much um, sealed most of northern Rome um, and the area pretty much south of Rome. Um all under Roman control. So if you kind of look on a map, um, the Romans pretty much controlled by um, 282 BC, pretty much everything up until, you know, the, pretty much where the boot is of the Southern Peninsula. Um, um, yeah, so let me scroll down a little bit more. Um, so really it's, around this time so by the time around 282 when the romans eventually conquer most of southern or not southern italy most of italy at this time not the southern part of it um the romans begin to come into contact with um different um regional powers um because at this time, around the 3rd century, Rome had pretty much established itself as a major power in Italy, but not really had come into serious conflict with um, 
different military powers in the Mediterranean. Um, there were two big powers at this time, the Carthaginians, which is in modern-day Tunisia, and obviously the Greek kingdoms in Greece. Um, pretty much while the Romans were growing and conquering most of Italy, uh, Carthage had kind of been established as originally as a Greek colony, I believe, but then it had kind of gained independence and established colonies uh, throughout most of northern Africa and Iberia, which is modern-day Spain. And the Greek kingdoms had been pretty much masters of the sea for years. Um, they had dominated most of the Eastern Mediterranean and pretty much established colonies all over. Um, and they were all linked together uh, via trade and sea. So, you know, originally uh, the Romans uh, had pretty good relations originally with Carthage. Um, you know, they were able to trade different things. So it wasn't like they originally came and immediately started fighting each other. But on the flip side of that, the Greeks, obviously, um, under different leaders like Alexander the Great, launched pretty extensive campaigns to conquer um, most of the Persian Empire, which is pretty much stretched from modern Turkey to pretty much, I think, yeah, Alexander the Great almost got the India. Um, so Alexander the Great really spread Greek influence like throughout the you know Middle East um, and Egypt. So it wasn't like the Greeks necessarily uh, were timid and sat back in the Greek peninsula. They were going to fight. Um, and originally, the uh, king of Epirus, which is, I think, near modern-day Albania, which is just north of modern-day Greece, um, looked to decisively strike against the Romans early, he would have ra he would rather fight on the peninsula um, and where he landed, um, which was at pretty much the southern end of the boot uh, at Taranto, not Toronto, Taranto, um, which the Romans didn't really have great control of. So he's able to land 25,000 men along with 20 war elephants um, in 280 BC. Um and pretty much the immediately the Romans um, pretty much moved their armies to face them, but uh, the cavalry of the Romans was actually pretty much afraid of the elephants um, and got defeated at the Battle of Heraclea. So, you know, Ferris then sought to march on Rome, um, but couldn't take any Roman city because most of the cities were fortified and Ferris didn't bring the equipment that he needed to take this city so or take different Roman cities. So he was almost pretty much stuck um, because he was in a deadlock. Um, the Romans kind of knew that as long as they sat back in their cities, um, fears couldn't do anything. But the Romans also knew if they came out to kind of challenge him, um, they would also be, um, you know, faced uh, with a very difficult battle. Um what is also interesting is there was also a Greek colony called Syracuse, which is in Sicily, which had extensive ties to, you know, the Greek mainland. Um, so eventually, Ferris, after kind of milling around in southern Italy, trying to take different cities but failing, uh, moved to Syracuse to help um, fight against the Carthaginians who had landed there to try and fight. Um, so eventually... Uh, Ferris departed southern Greece and moved to Sicily, where he was able to defeat the Carthaginians. Eventually, he kind of returned to Italy. Um, 
Oh, wait, I read that wrong. Uh, yeah, so eventually the Romans kind of followed him into Sicily. So Fierce was kind of facing with a fairly small army after campaigning um, the Carthaginians on one side and the Romans on the other. Um, eventually, you know, met the Romans at the Battle of Beneventum, who, um, where they lost um, and eventually lost eight of his elephants. Um, after that defeat, um, again, the Romans had lost quite a few men and weren't able to fully defeat Ferus, but Ferus also um, hadn't been able to accomplish what he did. And by this time, was pretty much most of his men had been lost. So he decided to withdraw um, from Italy um, and go and fight back in Greece. Uh, but eventually, uh, he was killed in a battle against another Greek city-state at Argos, um, and eventually the Romans came in 272 BC and took the city of Tarentinum, which is, I think, if I'm not mistaken, is in Sicily. I don't think that is in Rome. Or not Rome. Um, oh, it's actually in southern Italy. So, yeah, I did forget to mention that. So, Fears had eventually established garrisons kind of throughout southern Italy because the Romans didn't necessarily have control of this. But after he withdrew, the Romans kind of picked off these garrisons one by one. And eventually, um, the last city was Tarentium in 272 BC. Um, and Rome now had dominated the entire Italian peninsula and being able to defeat the Greeks kind of raised their international reputation. So now other regional powers are looking to, especially most of the Greek city-states um, and Carthage. Even though originally Carthage and Rome got along specifically because they wanted to kind of throw the Greeks out of Sicily because they had established colonies there, um, specifically Syracuse and Carthage had been at war uh, for years because the Carthaginians had wanted to take Sicily, uh, but the Greeks had always usually would send support to Syracuse um, and had kind of failed. But now that Rome had pretty much had controlled the entire peninsula um, Syracuse was kind of caught in the middle. Um, and originally, um, Rome had pretty much shifted their strategy to taking Sicily and if the Carthaginians got in their way, they would fight them too. So, um, eventually Romans moved into the penin or into Sicily itself and Carthage and Syracuse, despite fighting each other for centuries, saw Rome as a greater threat and made an alliance. Um, so it's interesting, this war, the first Punic War, as it called, which was fought between 264, uh, BC, the 241 BC, uh, was waged mostly in Sicily and the central Mediterranean around there. Uh, Carthage had for years, um, you know, sailed the Mediterranean and had built a very powerful and experienced Navy, but Rome hadn't done so. So they pretty much built their entire Navy from uh, scratch um, because in order to really secure Sicily, they would have to build a Navy that could challenge the Carthaginians in the Mediterranean. So eventually under the command of uh, Manius Valerius Corvinus Messala, um, he landed with 40,000 men um, to conquer Eastern Sicily and opposing to him was a man named Hero, uh, which I believe was Carthaginian, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so they were easily, the Romans probably had, even at this time, most 
a pretty powerful army and experienced army from all the fighting they had done in Italy. So eventually Carthage responded to send uh, reinforcements, including 60 war elephants. Um, but it was the first time they had actually used the elephants, so they quickly lost. So very early in the campaign, uh, Rome had pretty much taken most of eastern Sicily fairly quickly. Uh, but because of the Carthaginian navy, they were able to kind of retain control of the western uh, part of Sicily. So Rome pretty quickly knew that it would have to uh, build a navy. Um, and they launched pretty much a massive operation to construct 100, uh, which is called Quinn Kermers, which was kind of the um, the common naval warship of the time, um, pretty much through kind of assembly line organizations. So they basically have different stations and they would build a part, the part would move down the line, they would add a part. And eventually by the time it got to the sea, it would be fully built and they just put it in. So they were able to build this very quickly with pretty impressive ingenuity. Um, and under the command of Scipio Asina, um, eventually Rome lost its first naval skirmish because this was really the first time that Rome had kind of conducted naval operations in the um, Mediterranean. But then... Um, pretty much right after the, uh, his colleague Gaius Dulles won a great naval victory at Mile. Um, he destroyed and captured 44 ships and was uh, the first Roman to actually receive a naval triumph, um, and was able to bring captured Carthaginians, um, to Rome, which was pretty much a great triumph. Um, so while this is also going on, there's pretty vicious fighting in Sicily, but eventually, the Romans gained the upper hand on the ground in Sicily. Um, and at sea, uh, the Romans had uh, developed this device called the Corvus, which went on the front of the boat and was essentially a bridge with kind of a spike under it. So when the Romans came alongside a Carthian ship, they would swing this bridge over and plant it um, onto the Carthaginian ship where Roman soldiers would swarm across and pretty much overwhelm the ship and capture it. Uh, because Rome had a lot more experienced soldiers, they essentially just turned um, these infantrymen who had, you know, fought in Sicily and kind of turned them into Marines where they were able to, you know, fight ship to ship. Um, so really the Romans have been able to gain the upper hand both in Sicily and in, um, uh, in the Mediterranean, uh, eventually, however, uh, the Romans suffered um, a pretty significant defeat at the Battle of Bagratus Plain, where only 2,000 soldiers actually escaped. Um, and eventually, um, yeah, they lost a ton of ships, too, and soldiers. Um, so pretty much... So this happened in 240 or 254 BC. This defeat set back the Romans pretty significantly because they had lost almost um, 184 ships. So they would have to rebuild pretty much their entire navy. Um, so both sides kind of entered in almost... They were still at war technically, but there weren't any major campaigns because they were both rebuilding their forces. I think it's interesting that Sicily, uh, I guess it was like, strategically pretty significant um, that they would have to um, mobilize, 
or it was an important island in the Mediterranean. Um, so pretty much there was a lull between 254 BC and 252 BC. Eventually hostilities resumed in 252 BC, um, and the Carthaginians had now launched in um, an offensive against um, the Roman army in um, at Metellus, I believe is where he dug in. But Rome was able the Roman soul the Roman army was able to draw in the uh, Carthaginians and uh, pretty much destroy them. So after this battle at Metellus. Um, the Carthaginians had pretty much lost their standing army, so they weren't able to launch offensive operations in Sicily. So Rome pretty much systematically isolated um, and besieged a lot of the uh, remaining Carthaginian uh, holdouts uh, throughout kind of southern and southwestern Sicily. Um, but all of these operations were required a lot of soldiers. So... Um, you know, the Roman really had to mobilize pretty much every available soldier in the peninsula to be able to take all these. Um, but eventually the Roman, what pretty much decisively ended the first Punic War was Rome had again rebuilt um, almost 200 um, ships. Um, and eventually they basically just moved to each um, stronghold and blockaded it so they weren't able to get supplies from Carthage. So eventually, um, after picking off a few of these cities, um, Carthage sued for peace um, and negotiated a treaty, which was actually pretty lenient to Carthage. Uh, but the Roman uh, people and the Roman government rejected it. Um, and essentially, Carthage would have to pay a fine um, and evacuate um, Sicily. So... And then along the way, Rome was also able to take the islands of uh, Sardinia and um, I forget the island, if it's north or the south island, but the two islands um, west of Rome. So pretty much after the first Punic War, Rome had control of pretty much the entire peninsula, Sicily, um, and the two islands west of, um, west of Rome. Um, so for the while after the first Punic War, so it ended in 241 uh, BC is when the treaty was actually signed, um, there weren't really any hostilities um, for pretty much around um, 20 years, specifically because um, Rome kind of shifted its attention to expanding north uh, because there were usually um, tribes from Gaul and kind of Germanica, which is uh, Gaul, was considered modern day France, um, uh, modern day Belgium, modern day Netherlands, Switzerland, kind of that area from um, around France up until the Rhine River. And then Germanica was obviously modern day Germany. So there are a lot of tribes that would usually um, arrive in northern Italy to because it had very fertile land. Um, so, in the meantime, because Rome shifted its focus away from the uh, Carthaginians, uh, the Carthaginians uh, made up its defeat by shifting to expanding its colonies in uh, Spain. So, they are able to kind of expand their colonies and conquer a lot of land. And 
uh, one of the generals leading uh, the Carthaginians, a famous general named uh, Hannibal, who eventually, uh, with his victories in southern Spain, um, kind of rose up through the ranks along with um, his brother Hasdrubal and his other brother Mago. Um, but, of course, um, Rome sort of saw these campaigns in uh, Hispania, or modern Spain. They called it Hispania at that time. Um, and Rome, of course, wasn't happy about that. And um, eventually there was a treaty signed in 226 BC negotiated by Hasdrubal, which stated that Carthage couldn't, or couldn't cross the uh, Ebro River, which is um, in northern Spain. Uh, it's right before the... Gosh, I forget the mountains. Let me look them up so you can get some context. I'm blanking on it. If you look at the um, a map, it's essentially the um, mountains that kind of separate France uh, and Spain. Um, so, of course, Rome or Carthaginians um, decided. Uh, that they weren't going to listen to this treaty um, and decided that they were going to fight it out. Um, and eventually Carthage um, uh, refused to kind of acknowledge these campaigns. Um, so originally the Rome, Roman plan was pretty simple. It was essentially to um, first isolate um, and take the... Um, the colonies in Spain and then eventually take the Carthaginian homeland itself, which was centered around Carthage. Um, so the two consuls that got sent to Hispania were Publius Cornelius Scipio um, and Sepromius Longus. I apologize. I didn't realize that there was a thirty-minute, um, a thirty-minute uh, timer on Anchor, so I kind of screwed that up. So I kind of just kept talking ten minutes after. Um, so we're kind of right around the uh, second Carthage or the beginning of the second uh, Car or the second Punic War. Um, so obviously um, there were tensions between Rome. Um, and Carthage because of these campaigns that Hannibal, Hasdrubal were kind of waging in, uh, in Spain. So um, Rome decided to declare war on Carthage after uh, the Carthaginians refused to stop these campaigns. So the Romans arrived in uh, Hispania pretty quickly with an army of like 30,000 soldiers, but Hannibal was able to feed it very quickly. Um, and the strategy of the Carthaginians was to take the fight to Italy, um, where they believed that if they were able to fight in Italy, then they could continue to kind of um, function and control uh, its colonies. Um, it was a risky strategy because they had a uh, across two mountain ranges, the Pyrenees and the Alps. So eventually, with the vast majority of the soldiers in Hispania, along with a lot of mercenaries from Gaul um, and Numidia, Hannibal was able to cross um, 
both these mountains, but he had lost almost half his army in the process because it's very difficult to have as he cross not one mountain range, but two mountain ranges. So eventually he arrived in around May of 218. I think he started his journey in 218 BC. Um, and along the way was able to, um, with around 50,000 soldiers, which is a lot of men, um, eventually Hannibal marched south and won three huge victories. Uh, the first ones that was there is at the banks of Trebia in December 218 BC, uh, where he defeated um, one of the consuls, Semprius Longus, um, thanks to Hannibal's other brother, Mago, who had accompanied him, was able to ambush um, most of the Roman legions and pretty much um, isolate and destroy it. Uh, and more than half of this Roman army was lost. Um, and eventually Hannibal just ran around northern Italy um, and looted most of the supplies and people that were up there. Um, and eventually the Romans uh, sent another army under the new consul Gaius Flaminus into a trap at the Battle of Lake Trasimni, um, uh, just like he had at the first battle at Trebia. Uh, Hannibal was able to lure in most of the Roman army and then attack their flanks um, and destroy it. And eventually, this consul was killed too. So, in pretty much less than um, two years, Rome had lost two consuls. Um, so, the new two new consuls, Amos Paulus and Tarentinus Varro, mustered the biggest army possible with almost eight legions, which was more than eighty thousand soldiers, which was more than twice the Carthaginian army. Um, Hannibal was, um, camped out at Cannae, which is, I'm blanking on where this is. I think it was in, yeah, so it was just north of Rome, I believe. Um, and despite being outnumbered pretty much two to one, uh, Hannibal used, just like he had at his previous battles, attacked the flanks with his superior cavalry. Um, and pretty much annihilated this army um, and is considered and statistically in terms of casualties is the worst defeat in the history of Rome. Only 14,500 soldiers actually survived the battle. Um, and along the way, um, one of the consuls, Paulus, was killed along with almost 80 senators. Um, so these um, defeats... Um, triggered a wave of defection among most of the Roman allies, um, specifically the Semnites, um, the Oscans, which are both in southern Italy, and also a lot of the Greek um, colonies that Rome had previously conquered in like 270 um, when they were fighting against Ferris, um, decided to rebel and aid um, Hannibal um, and another person who also joined the fund was, uh, Philip V, uh, who was a relative, or I think a descendant of, uh, Alexander the Great from Macedonia. Um, so really around this time, this was a dark moment for Rome. Not only had they suffered three very ugly defeats, but it seemed like every single, uh, territory they had, they had originally conquered was turning against them. Um, so the strategy sort of shifted. Um, um, so 
Rome shifted its strategy. Instead of seeking to fight a decisive battle, Hanamel decided to pull most of its soldiers back and fortify their cities and essentially take and pillage the countryside so Hannibal couldn't um, supply his armies um, and focus most of its efforts in Hispania. Um, and overall, the situation was much better. Um and eventually there were brothers named Publius and Gnaeus Scipio uh, quickly won the Battle of Sissa in 218 BC. Um, so while Hannibal was away, um, the Carthaginian forces in Hispania were commanded by his brother at Hasdrubal. And pretty much the Romans, uh, Publius and or the Scipio brothers were way more competent than the vast majority of the other Roman generals. And eventually systematically worked their way down the... Um, kind of the coastline of Spain and took city after city um, and eventually using and copied a lot of the um, tactics that Hannibal used by using ambushes and heavy attacks against the flanks to um, win these battles. Uh, eventually Publius' son, uh, the future Scipio Africanus, which is one of the most favorite or famous um, generals in Roman history, um, was eventually elected to a special uh, consulship. So um, he was given a lot of resources to eventually um, take Spain. And eventually he took the capital of the Hispanic Carthaginian colonies uh, called Carthaja, Carthago Nova, which was the main Punic base in Hispania. And eventually uh, defeated Hasdrubal at the Battle of Baikula in 208 BC. Um um, and eventually, Hasdrubal decided to withdraw and try and join his brother um, in uh, Italy. But and and he tried to use the same route that Hannibal did through the Pyrenees and Alps. But eventually, uh, the consuls Livius Salinator and Claudius Nero were pretty much waiting to ambush him. And at the Battle of Materias, uh, Hasdrubal was killed, and most of the Carthaginian forces in the region were destroyed, which pretty much gave control of Hispania to Rome. Um, and this pretty much turned the tide of the war. Um, in the meantime, while all this was going on, um, Hannibal is pretty much stuck in Italy, unable to really do anything because he didn't have the equipment or the numbers to take a lot of the Roman sit, the main Roman cities. Um, so he could only really wander around the countryside because the Romans wouldn't engage him. Um, and eventually, while the, despite all these different allies, Rome was able to kind of isolate and contain it and pretty much pick off these different allies. And eventually they negotiated a treaty, the treaty, what is called the Treaty of Phoenicia with Macedonia with Philip V, uh, which prevented um, Philip from being able to aid Hannibal. Um, so by 205 BC, really the crisis had pretty much been averted. Um, Scipio continued his campaign and was able to take um, Utica, which is, um, I think, uh, actually, I'm skipping ahead. Sorry about that. So um, eventually Hispania uh, was taken by Scipio, and eventually he was elected consul, uh, where he convinced the Senate to kind of change the strategy um, and take the fight to Africa itself and continue to isolate Hannibal's army. Um, so eventually, while this was also happening, one of the main Carthaginian allies, Numidia, under the king Masinissa, that's a cool name, um, he 
uh, was able to cross the Mediterranean because obviously at this time, the Romans had pretty much control of the Mediterranean um, and landed with a pretty large army. So the Carthaginians uh, recalled Hannibal and most of his army from Italy. Um, and at the Battle of Zama in, I believe, 204 BC, um, Hannibal lost the first battle of his career and was decisively defeated. And it's interesting because the heavy Numidian cavalry, which had won um, Hannibal so many victories against the Romans, were the same soldiers that defeated him um, at this battle. Um, so eventually after this battle, Hannibal convinced the Carthaginian Senate to uh, negotiate a peace, which they did. Um, Carthage was pretty much negotiate or was pretty much isolated to its um, core territory in modern day Tunisia. It lost most of its colonies in northern Africa and Hispania, and also had to pay a ton of money. Um, so all of this pretty much relegated Carthage to a minor power. So this allowed Rome um, to shift its resources to the uh, Western Mediterranean, where the Greeks were eventually seeing the threat the Romans posed and reunifying um, to fight against the Romans itself. Uh, so Rome began to shift a lot of its focus towards conquering uh, mainland Greece. Um, and really the... At this time, um, so we do have to take a step back here and kind of understand the situation within Greece before Rome really began the campaign against them. So um, Greece was kind of dominated by three primary successor kingdoms of Alexander the Great. So after he died, and um, I think it was around 320 BC he passed away, um, Alexander divided it between his generals um, into Egypt, um, the Seleucid Empire, and Macedonia. So they kind of all duked it out over the previous um, area that Alexander had conquered. Um, eventually, around 202 BC, there were internal issues at Egypt, so they kind of left the theater, and it was eventually between uh, Macedonia and the Seleucid Empire to kind of fight it out. Um, eventually... Um, Rome kind of moved across the um, Adriatic Sea into, I think is around modern day Albania and kind of established a colony there and a military presence there um, right next to Macedonia itself. So uh, Rome uh, in the, what is called the first Macedonian war, it was exclusively land operations and making sure it had a, um, significant holding in this colony itself. Um, and eventually over the next couple of years around, or over the next five years, um, Rome kept, uh, moving soldiers and resources over to, um, into its colonies so it could launch a decisive campaign and eventually, um, in what was called the Second Macedonian War, uh, the Romans quickly and decisively defeated Philip V at the Battle of Sinosphale. I can't read that. Um, uh, Philip was forced to give up a lot of the uh, conquests he had previously had in Greece, not against the Romans itself, but he had conquered the area around, like, um, kind of where Sparta and Athens are. Um, and eventually... Um, 
Rome decided to just not establish a permanent presence there, like believing that Philip V was in no position to rise to a significant power again, pulled out of Greece entirely um, and kind of left its allies in Athens and Spartans to kind of fend for themselves. Um, uh, however, while the Romans pulled out the Seleucid Empire, which had um, control of most of modern-day Turkey, uh, was becoming more aggressive in trying to conquer not only Macedonia, but the entire Greek world itself. Um, so eventually, Philip V, seeing that the Seleucids were uh, being more aggressive against him and the other Greek allies, actually went and sought an alliance with um, um, with the Romans. And another character we've been talking about, Hannibal, had after Carthage had lost the Second Punic War and lost most of its possessions, Hannibal had went and was now the chief military advisor to the Seleucid Empire. Uh, and eventually Hannibal wanted to kind of use the Seleucid Empire to get his revenge against the Romans. Uh, so the arrival of the Seleucids, um, the Romans realized that there was a serious chance they were going to lose their allies in Greece and lose their foothold in the peninsula itself. Um, so the Romans began um, a massive mobilization. So they, <clears throat> excuse me, um, began to move more and more soldiers um, over to these colonies. Um, eventually, a major Roman and Greek force was mobilized under the command of Scipio Africanus, who won the Battle of Zama and set out for Greece and began the what is called the Roman-Syrian War against the Seleucids. Um, after you know initial fighting, uh, the Seleucids kind of realized um, how outgunned and outnumbered they were. Um, and eventually, um, in isolated actions, the Seleucids realized they didn't have the uh, armies to fight and eventually evacuated out of Greece. But the Romans didn't stop there. They pursued the Seleucids um, by crossing into modern-day Turkey. Um, and eventually, at the Battle of Magnesia, um, it resulted in a complete Roman victory, and the Seleucids eventually sued for peace. Uh, the Romans forced them to give up most of their the Greek conquest. Um, and although the Seleucids um, controlled a ton of territory, um, they were now dealing with some serious issues, one being that, A, they had just gotten their butts kicked by the Romans, and also there was a new um, force rising in the east called the Parthians, who eventually began the Chippededs holdings at, in Mesopotamia. Um, so it began kind of a pretty rapid decline. Um of the Seleucid Empire and the Romans wouldn't have to worry about then again. Um, so after this war, Rome again withdrew from Greece, um, hoping that um, because Macedonia was weak and because most of the other Greek city-states um, um, you know, weren't that powerful, they thought there would be a stable peace, but obviously that was not true. Um, so yeah. Um so after the Roman-Syrian War, the Romans, again, had kind of hoped that there would be a stable peace because there wasn't a major Greek power. Um, but eventually, Philip V died in 179 BC, uh, but his talented and very ambitious son Perseus took the throne um, and took a renewed interest in conquering Greece. 
Um, and with most of uh, the Greek allies that Rome had uh, put together, now faced a major threat. So Rome declared uh, Macedonia or declared war. <coughs> excuse me, on Macedonia again, um, starting the Third Macedonian War. Um, initially, Perseus had some successes because the Romans again hadn't had a huge presence on the peninsula. But eventually, Rome responded by sending an even stronger army, just like they do. Um, this second army uh, decisively defeated the Macedonians at the Battle of Pedinium, 168 BC, and the Macedonians quickly capitulated, ending the war. Um, and it was after this war that the Romans were convinced that there was never going to be a peace among the Greeks itself, because eventually, you know, one of the allies would betray Rome or Macedonia would rise again. Um, so eventually, um, pretty much over the next uh, 22 years till 146 BC. Um, Rome sort of pacified the region. Uh, it way it fought the Fourth Macedonian War after the uh, Macedonians rebelled, and also fought against its former allies, the Achaean League. Um, but Rome swiftly defeated them. Um, and 146 BC, uh, which was the same year that Carthage was destroyed. Um, we'll get to that in a bit. Uh, Corinth was besieged and destroyed at the Battle of Corinth, which led to um, the surrender of the Achaean League. And after pretty much nearly a century of constant crisis management in Greece, um, which eventually always led to infighting, Rome decided to permanently establish a presence in Greece um, and divided um, Macedonia itself and the two new Roman provinces, Achaea and Macedonia, and also pretty much retained control of the southern half of Greece around Athens and Spartan. Um, so while the conquest of Greece was going on, um, in 149 BC, um, Carthage had never really recovered from the Second Punic War. It obviously had lost most of its colonies um, and pretty much relegated to a third great power in the Mediterranean. And eventually the Numidians um, had been picking on the Carthaginians, um, robbing and attacking different merchants who kind of came through there. Um, but because of the previous treaty, Carthage wasn't allowed to declare war without Roman permission. Um, and eventually, um, because Carthage decided to start defending these merchants, was seen as an act of war by the Romans, and Rome decided to destroy the city of Carthage. Um, and Carthage was pretty much defenseless because its army had been decimated previously. Um, and eventually the Romans um, arrived, surrounded the city, and demanded a complete surrender and removal of the city. Um, and if there was going to surrender, um, Carthage would have to be moved into the desert or pretty much off the coast. Um, eventually the city was besieged, stormed, and completely destroyed. Um, pretty much all after this, Carthage obviously pretty much collapsed. Um, Rome had pretty much taken control now of um, Hispania and most of northern Africa around Tunisia. Um, but with um, Carthage gone, uh, most of the other Punic cities in the Western Mediterranean actually flourished under Roman rule. So pretty much 146 BC is when Rome becomes the dominant power in the um, in the Mediterranean in general. Um, and really from 146 BC up until 60 BC, which is the start of the Gaelic Wars and the first... Um, Trimbunet. Um, um, this sort of 
So this period, kind of its rapid expansion in the Greece and the Carthage into all these different areas, destabilized a lot of the social organization in the empire, uh, which led to a lot of political violence, unrest in different provinces, um, and ultimately a breakdown of traditional social relations of Rome. Uh, and this period kind of marked the rise of strongmen like Marius, Sulla, Pompey the Great, Crassus, and obviously Julius Caesar, who is the most famous of them. Um, and these politicians were able to turn military successes into political power, which is sort of a first under the consul system. It was kind of different. Um, senators were able to uh, <clears throat> were able to gain different political influence, but really in this initial phase of expansion there hadn't been you know a roman general that had been able to gain so much influence that he was able to overthrow the republic but obviously all of this sort of changed under these different guys um so in 133 bc there was the first slave uprising known as the first uh servile war which broke out in sicily after the slaves um led by unis and cleon um, rose up against the Roman masters, but eventually they were annihilated and killed. Um, and eventually, um, in this context, Tiberius Gracchus uh, was elected to tribune in 133 BC, and he wanted to create a law um, that would limit the amount of land that any individual could own. But obviously, the aristocrats who would lose a lot of money and land were pissed off at this, um, and eventually um he was kind of thrown out of power um and eventually murdered by all the senators so if you think julius caesar was the only guy to get stabbed to death by the senators you are wrong um so it was kind of in this early stage in 133 bc where 121 bc were kind of the um, the cracks were beginning to show both within the republic itself and within the different social order because of all these different changes and different people that were coming in. Um, so after this period, um, a man by the name of Marius, um, or Gaius Marius, eventually um, kind of rose up through the ranks of the military and waged um, several battles in southern Gaul against various tribes who were trying to migrate into northern Italy. And it was kind of through these different battles that he was able to kind of see the issues of the Roman military firsthand. Um, specifically, um, the Roman military had operated during the Punic Wars and the Greece Wars um, with three different infantry types, the Hastati, the Princeps, and the Triary. Um, and these were essentially heavy infantry, spearmen, and then light infantry, all kind of rolled into one. Um, the kind of issue was this was um, trying to mix all these different units together um, made it kind of tactically limited because you're trying to combine spearmen and infantrymen or swordsmen kind of all into these different um, all in these different units. So the concept of the legion had always kind of been there, but Gaius Marius kind of took this concept and um, eventually uh, was able to be elected in consul in 107 BC and kind of waged a massive reforms on the Roman army. So eventually that three-part system of the legion was completely scrapped for um, the now-known legionnaire, which was essentially... Um, a professional soldier that would act as, you know, a heavy infantryman. 
So it's under kind of Gaius Marius that the Roman military begins to shift from more of a citizen army to a professional army. Um, and obviously this shift is super important because if Rome hadn't been able to kind of shift to a more professional outfit with more modern tactics and organizations of that time specifically, there was no way they were going to be able to wage um, and conquer the territory that eventually they did. Um, eventually, um, so it was through these different reforms that the Roman army was also changing. So we also see in this time period how you know, the Roman social order is changing, the Roman government is kind of changing, the Roman military is changing. So all these different changes are going on. And with all these changes comes instability. So the first civil wars break out in 91 BC um, in Italy itself. A lot of it's, um, a lot of it's um, unrest. So this internal... Add line back up. Sorry about that. So eventually, civil war breaks out in Italy itself. Um, this internal arrest um, reaches serious state um, when Gaius Marius and Lucius Cornelius Sola begin to fight each other. Or starting in 88 BC at the Battle of Colin Great, um, pretty much right outside of Rome, begin to fight each other. Um, and this was kind of a, an important moment because it showed a willingness of Roman um, soldiers wait to wage a war against one another in order to kind of support their own general. And obviously we see this 40 years later with Julius Caesar when he's at the Rubicon and the Roman Senate says, give up your army. And uh, Julius Caesar says, nope, um, I will not. So, you know, we see a lot of trends and a lot of similarities because these things kind of happening forward. You know, Julius Caesar taking his army across the Rubicon was not the first time this had happened in Roman history. Um, so it was after these civil wars that eventually um, Sulla, uh, I think, was eventually killed. Actually, no, he was not. Um, eventually, he was able to win the civil war. Um, and eventually, he sought to kind of strengthen the aristocracy by expanding the Senate. Um, and eventually, Sulla made himself dictator um, and passed a series of kind of constitutional reforms. Then he resigned his dictatorship and then served one last term as consul and eventually died um, in 78 BC. Um, so, yeah. Sula had, under his very brief dictatorship, had kind of been able to return a sense of normalcy uh, to the Roman Republic. So kind of after this period of civil war, um, the Roman Republic sort of returned back to normal. Um, so um, with this, eventually there was a third and final uprising under one of the most famous people in this era, Spartacus. Um, eventually under almost like had originally under 120,000 slaves eventually was able to kind of organize and pretty much run around Rome and do um, pretty much what he wanted. But um, eventually he was tracked down and um, his army was destroyed by Pompey uh, the Great, who was one of Sulis's um, chief lieutenants um, and destroyed most of the slaves and pretty much all the survivors were crucified as kind of a uh, message to pretty much any of the slaves living in Rome that they would uh, have to submit to um, different rule. 
Um, so after this uh, slave uprising, um, Rome kind of shifted to expand its borders again. Um, the, specifically, there was a um, kingdom in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, um, which kind of rose after the Seleucid Empire had kind of crumbled um, under the rule of Mithridates the Great. Um, and he kind of antagonized Rome by seeking to expand his uh, kingdom. Um, and Rome, for its part, seemed equally eager to wage war against them because it allowed to expand its foothold in modern-day Turkey. And hopefully, and eventually the Romans hoped to kind of expand into um, kind of the Levant and modern-day Iraq or Mesopotamia. Um, so eventually, uh, the second Mithridic War kind of began when Rome tried to annex a province that uh, Mithridas claimed as his own. Um, and eventually there was back and forth fighting because obviously Turkey, it's pretty harsh terrain. So it's very difficult to kind of win a decisive battle because, um, Pontus had a pretty formidable army and had a lot of resources to fight against the Romans. But eventually, uh, Pompey, um, was eventually sent to Asia minor, um, and was able to eventually, um, kind of, uh, in a in back and forth fighting, uh, the Romans really could never gain the upper hand, and eventually um, Pompey was able to defeat uh, this king um, at the Battle of Lyca. So this sort of um, this pro this province in central Turkey um, allowed Rome to kind of gain a foothold in um, that area of the world. Um, but while all this was happening, the Mediterranean um, had kind of fallen uh, to the hands of uh, pirates, mostly operating out of uh, Sicilia. Um, the pirates not only pretty much uh, had a chokehold on different shipping lanes, uh, but also plundered a lot of different cities and uh, Roman colonies in Greece and Asia. Eventually, Pompey was nominated to be the commander of a special task force to campaign against the pirates. Um, and one of the most famous campaigns in Roman military history, it took Pompey just 40 days to clear the western portion of the pirate or the western portion of the Sea of Pirates and restore communication between Spain, Africa, and Italy. Um, and eventually, along this, uh, Pompey was sent into Hispania to quell an uprising, um, having been able to defeat. Um, the uprising pretty quickly. Um, another one of uh, Sulla's former lieutenants, Marcus Linnaeus Crassus, who's also very famous, um, led um, led the efforts to quell the Spartacus-led gladiator-slash-slave revolt in Italy. Um, and eventually, uh, Pompey and Crassus both returned to Rome and found that their party was fiercely attacked uh, fiercely attacking Sulla's constitution. And eventually they tried to forge an agreement with the Popularist Party. Um, if both Pompey and Crassus were elected consul in 70 BC, uh, they planned to kind of dismantle, dismantle a lot of the different components of Sulla's constitution. Um, eventually the two were elected and they kind of, um, not destroyed, but kind of reformed a lot of the different, um, amendments that have been made under Sulla. Um, so it's really 
under in this era, specifically Pompey the Great and Crassus, both kind of emerge as the first true strong men um, whose military successes translate directly to political success. Um, Crassus being able to defeat Spartacus and Pompey being able to fight in Asia Minor and Hispania, both gave them a lot of influence and political power within the Roman system. Um, and a lot of Roman senators and a lot of people in the aristocracy didn't like that. Um, and I think in a lot of ways, this system was flawed because the Roman politics and Roman military at this time began to shift and go hand in hand. Um, in the earlier day, in the earlier years of the Republic, you know, fighting the military was seen more of defending the Republic itself, um, rather than, um, conquering all these new territories. But obviously after being able to conquer Greece and, um, defeat Carthage, Roman becomes the premier power in the Mediterranean. So it begins the shift to conquering different territory rather than having this philosophy of defending the Republic. So that's kind of where the shift begins. And you really begin to see a strain in Roman politics because these different generals go and fight these wars and conquer new territory for Rome um, and come back and have all this influence and popularity among the common populace while other senators are frustrated by this. Um, so eventually these two were elected consul and kind of forged an alliance, um, with another man, Julius Caesar, who I will go into mu much more in depth in, in just a moment. Julius Caesar, um, is one of the more intriguing characters in Roman history, um, specifically because of his military campaigns in Gaul, which are very well documented because he wrote a autobiography on his campaigns. Um, there's also a lot of uh, historical documents and writing about him. And obviously, um, he ended the Roman Republic by getting uh, elected to become the dictator of Rome. And ultimately, this led to his assassination um, uh, and eventually his heir, um, I think his name, Gaius Octavius. I don't know if that's his first name, but Octavius took over from him and became the first true emperor of the Roman Empire. But anyways, Gaius Julius Caesar was born on July 12th, 100 BC in Rome. Um, his family was considered to be one of the descendants from Julius, the son of the legendary Trojan prince Iannis and supposedly who was the son of the goddess Venus. So a lot of the patrician families and um, families of the aristocrats um, claim descent from various gods or various characters from mythology. Uh, so this wasn't really anything new. Um, so Caesar's father, who was also called Gaius Julius Caesar, um, was a governor in province and came up through the ranks under... Um, Gaius Marius, who was one of the most prominent figures of the Republic in that time. And obviously, we just talked about him, um, led a bunch of reforms in the Roman um, military. So very early on, Julius was exposed to the uh, Gaius's um, kind of influence and power and really wanted to, you know, come through that. However, in 85 BC, uh, Caesar's father died suddenly. So Caesar became the head of the family at only at the age of 16. So while he was taking over 
um, as the head of the family, it also the civil war between his uncle Gaius Marius and his uh, big rival Lucius Cornelius Sola, who we talked about, was going on. Um, and both sides obviously carried out very bloody campaigns against political opponents um, as they were trying to gain enough influence to um, beat the other. Um, however, Sulla um, eventually won and obviously, as we talked about, uh, was declared dictator for a brief period of time where he led a bunch of reforms and then retired and pursued uh, consul one more time. So because of Sulla's victory, Caesar thought that he was now in danger of potentially being killed because of his association with um, Gaius Marius. Um, so Caesar joined the army. Um and served under Marcus Minius Thermus in Asia um, and Sicilia. And he actually served with distinction and won the uh, civil crown for his part in the siege of Methelian. So the civil crown was a award given to Roman soldiers who performed very well. So at a very young age, Caesar proved himself on the battlefield. Um, and eventually Sulla died in 78 BC. So Caesar felt safe enough to uh, return to Rome and also um, was able to inherit... Um, well, actually, we should take a step back. Um, so Caesar returned to Rome, but he didn't necessarily uh, gain all of the um, possessions that um, were passed down to him by his family. So eventually he was able to get a modest house um, in the lower class neighborhoods of Rome. And eventually, um, you know, he sought to... Um, raise his political profile and his military profile um, by becoming a governor. So eventually he was elected a uh, military tribune, which was the first step in his political career in 69 BC. Um, and then also in 69 BC, his wife Cornelia died. Um, so very early in his life, he lost his father. And then also a few years later, um, or not a few, about a decade later, he lost his wife. Um, and eventually, over the next couple of years, he began to slowly climb the ranks of the uh, Roman bureaucracy. In 65 BC, he was elected the Quirul Aedili, which I believe was a elected office, um, which focused on th uh, like throwing or the maintenance of like public buildings and public festivals. Um, and he also staged. Um, very lavish games through that position, which won him a lot of popular support among the middle and lower classes. Um, because of his success there, he eventually was appointed to govern um, Hispania Ulterior, which is the western part of like modern-day Spain. Um, and some sources think that he held proconsular power, so he was able to... Um, kind of raised military soldiers and had a lot more power than the average governor would at that time. Um, but through all of this, um, Julius Caesar had kind of um, gained a ton of debt uh, and he would have to satisfy the creditors who gave him that money uh, before he could actually go and govern. So he turned to uh, Marcus Lincius Crassus, who was considered to be the richest man in Rome at the time. Um, Crassus paid some of his debts um, in return for getting political support um, in his... Uh, so Crassus had uh, interest in becoming consul, but he was rivals with Pompey the Great, who we also talked about, who had won a claim on different battlefields. Um, 
across the empire. So those two were kind of rivals. So Caesar sort of acted as an intermediate intermediary uh, between them. Um, so he was able to pay off some of his debts. Um, Caesar um, went to Spain um, and eventually led a couple of campaigns um, in the province with his troops um, and very successfully. Um, and he was also able to reform some of the laws in the province um, regarding debt and for the most part completed his governmentship with high esteem. So he sort of checked off all the boxes of kind of a Roman seeking to become consul um, by kind of working his way up over the past couple of years. He had military experience um, both as an average soldier and as a general and he had been able to be a um, good political leader, being able to govern a difficult province in Spain which often was the site of rebellions and unrest. Um, so eventually in 60 BC, Caesar sought, um, the election as consul, um, along with two other candidates. Um, one of his rivals, Cato, um, didn't want them to get it, but because, um, Caesar was already in political debt with Marcus Lincius Crassus, um, and he had also kind of made, um, some promises to Pompey, um, Caesar, again, acted as an intermediary and decided to form what was called the First Triumvirate, which was essentially a off-the-books alliance between Crassus, Pompey, and Caesar, where they would kind of share political influence and military power. So it's really the first time we see um, these alliances of these super powerful political people and military generals. Um, operating kind of in the shadows of the Roman government and um, acting, trying to kind of do each other's favors and do all of that. So um, through this, um, Pompey um, arranged a marriage with Caesar's daughter, Julia, um, and Caesar also remarried um, to a woman named Calpurnia, who was also the daughter of another powerful senator. So we kind of see through these um, various... Um, marriages and stuff that these were key in being able to gain influence and support from different senators. So um, we kind of see through Julius Julius Caesar's marriage um, and Pompey's marriage that these guys, um, by um, having family members um, marrying the other families, they're able to gain political flavors and and so on and so forth. So eventually Caesar, um, I think, he was elected. He was able to win the consulship in 60 BC, um, but he tried to pass it to a bunch of different reforms, but the Senate um, refused to allow him. So eventually um, he was given military command. Um, oh, wait. Yeah. So eventually he kind of was thrown out of office um, and was appointed to be the military governor governor of Cispine Gaul, which is in northern Italy, and Illyricum, which is in southeastern Europe, um, and Transalpine Gaul, which is um, in southern France. Um, he is also given command of four legions, so around 20,000 men. Um, in terms, because he was able to get in these government ships, he was um, allowed immunity from prosecution. Um, so he's kind of the only way <laughs> to kind of um, avoid getting prosecuted in Rome was to can eventually go uh, in these government ships or government government ships. So he arrived at, um, at his government ship 
in um, 59 BC and was still deeply in debt. So people are kind of coming for his head because he hadn't paid off his debts. Um, so he decided to go and conquer um, Gaul, which was essentially modern-day France, Belgium, the Netherlands, and kind of Switzerland, that sort of area. Um, and although... So Caesar quickly went and raised two new legions. So he was able to get his forces around to 30,000 men. Um, and he slowly uh, was able to kind of consolidate his um, land around Transalpine Gaul and then began to slowly move north and north um, west and begin the um, fight against the various tribes into the region. Um so during the spring of 56 BC, while he was campaigning, Rome was um, kind of in turmoil and Caesar's political alliance was becoming undone. Um, the Luca Conference, as it was called, um, allowed um, Caesar to, re to renew his government sh governance ship uh, for another five years. Um, and soon... Um, he was essentially allowed to continue his campaigns against Gaul, the various tribes in the regions, um, and was able to put up a victory after victory. Um, and eventually in 55 BC, um, Caesar repelled an incursion in the Gaul by two Germanic tribes um, who crossed the Rhine River. And then eventually, as a show of force, he built a ginormous bridge across the Rhine River and then um, campaigned in what is now Germany for, I think, about a year. Um, and then eventually, as kind of returned back to Gaul um, and destroyed the bridge. And while he was also doing this, he launched several expeditions against Britain. It was considered a very mysterious land, the Romans. Um, for the most part, they were sort of the same um, tribal groups and cultures that occurred in Gaul. But regardless, um, Caesar launched two attempts to just two expeditions, essentially. Um, they both failed in that they there was a lot of fighting when they landed, but Caesar was never able to get enough support or men across the English Channel um, to, you know, occupy uh, Great Britain or Britannica per, uh, permanently. Um, so, yeah, it was called Britannica at the time, but it's obviously modern-day Great Britain. Um so after these um, campaigns in 55 and 54 and 53 BC, a key event occurs. Um, Crassus um, was killed leading a failed invasion of the East against the Parthian Empire. Um, after being initially successful, um, Crassus's forces were isolated and destroyed by the Parthian Empire. Um, and this was super important because um, Caesar lost a key ally in the first triumvirate. And while this was all going on and Caesar was campaigning, Pompey was sort of um, operating in the background in Rome, um, gaining influence and turning a lot of the senators against him. Um, and eventually Caesar had to um, fight a very united or fight the united Gallic tribes against Vercingetorix, um, who attempted to unite all of Gaul against the Romans in 52 BC. Um, but Su Caesar proved his military prowess by um, winning several battles, um, specifically the Battle of Alesia, where Vercingetorix was captured. Um, and pretty much after this point, Gaul was effectively conquered. Um, the historian Plutarch. Uh, 
claimed that Caesar, during the course of his campaign, fought against three million men, of whom another million died and another million enslaved, and he subjugated 300 tribes and destroyed 800 cities. So based off those figures alone, um, historians of this time tended to exaggerate the figures. For example, if they showed up at a battlefield, there'd be... The guy would walk up to the commander and be like, hey, how many guys you kill? And he'd be like, eh, I think 20,000. And this historian would be like, well, that doesn't seem high enough. We'll say 40,000. By the time the historian arrived and the Roman senators would want to inflate those costs, they'd probably get to um, really high numbers. Um, so different historians have kind of like tried to estimate the actual numbers, which is always difficult because... Um, a lot of the figures um, of this time tended to be very exaggerated. So really, these campaigns in Gaul raised um, Caesar's military profile. It kind of gave him an army that was very rugged and very battle-tested. Um, but the problem with all of this, despite being able to um, get these different... Um, successes in Gaul, he had pretty much turned most of the Roman government and Senate against him. Um, in 50 BC, the Senate, led by Pompey, eventually, after his campaigns ordered Caesar to disband his army and return to Rome because his uh, term as governor had finished. Um, but Caesar thought that he was going to be prosecuted as soon as he resigned his position and returned to Rome. Um, so he kind of sat around refusing to do anything. And then eventually Pompey accused Caesar of insubordinated, insubordination and treason. Um, and on January 10, 49 BC, in one of the more famous, probably one of the most fam famous moments in Roman history, Caesar crossed the Rubicon River, which is considered the frontier boundary of Italy with only a single legion, actually, the 13th Legion Hemina, and it, this ignited uh, another civil war. Um, and upon crossing the Rubicon, according to the historian Plutarch, and Suetonius is supposed to have quoted the Athenian playwright Neander in Greek, the die is cast, which is one of my favorite uh, things. It's not really sure if that was actually said or not, but uh, regardless... Um, you know, with the die being cast, Pompey and many of the Senate actually fled south, having little confidence in uh, Pompey's newly raised troops because most of Rome or most of Caesar's troops had been campaigning in Gaul for years. Um, Caesar um, didn't want to fight in Rome itself, but did pursue Pompey. But he managed to escape uh, mostly in Greece, um, where. Most of the senators and Pompey and Pompey's lieutenants spread the different parts of the empire. Pompey, I believe, fled to Greece, and a, a few of his lieutenants fled to um, Iberia and Spain. So Caesar decided to pick off Pompey's lieutenants first. Um, and heading to Spain, he left uh, Italy under the control of one of uh, Caesar's lieutenants, Mark Anthony. Um, in an astonishing 27-day march, um, Caesar was able to defeat most of Pompey's lieutenants in um, Iberia, and then he turned around and returned to Greece, where at the Battle of uh, Dyrrhachium, um, Caesar suffered a very, almost a catastrophic defeat. Um, and a few, uh, basically a month later, he was able to turn around and defeat Pompey at the Battle of Pharsalus in Greece on August 9th, 48 BC. Um, and back in Rome, Caesar was appointed dictator, um, and Mark Anthony 
um, was appointed the master of the horse, which is considered the second in command. Um, Caesar presided over his own election to a second consulship uh, and then resigned um, this dictatorship. So it's interesting that these guys were able to um, be appointed dictators, but then resign the position in favor of consulship. Um, eventually, the, uh, Pompey tried to send assassins to put him to death, but he got caught and had them killed. Um, and eventually, uh, Pompey um, fled to Egypt, where he married um, Cle Cleopatra. Cleopatra, I never can say that correctly. Um, so Caesar pursued um, and got involved in a civil war between um, two rival powers in Egypt. Then Pompey had sided with uh, Cleopatra by marrying him. Um, and then eventually he was able to defeat the Pharaoh's forces at the Battle of the Nile in 47 BC and installed uh, Cleopatra as ruler. Um, they celebrated a um, victory with a triumphal procession on the Nile in the spring of 47 BC. And while this also happened, Pompey, who arrived um, quickly after, uh, was murdered by um, the pharaohs. Um, I think, I don't know if it was their bodyguards, but regardless, was just murdered upon his arrival uh, because he thought he could garner the support of the pharaoh. Um, and again, in late 48 BC, Caesar was again appointed dictator with a term of one year. Um, and after spending um, uh, his first couple months in Egypt fighting um, in the Egyptian Civil War, Caesar went to the Middle East where he was where he annihilated the king of Pontus. Um, and his victory was so swift that he went and mocked um, Pompey's previous victories over such um, poor enemies. Um, so he kind of campaigned for a few months in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. Um, so, and then after these uh, various victories throughout 46 BC, uh, he eventually hunted down um, one of his other rivals, Cato, who originally challenged him for the consulship all the way back in 60 BC, um, defeated him, and eventually Cato committed suicide. Um, so after this victory, he was appointed to be a dictator for 10 years. Uh, most of Pompey's sons escaped to Spain, and Caesar gave chase to them and eventually defeated the last remnants of um, Pompey's forces at the Battle of Munda in March 45 BC. Um, and during this time, um, Caesar was also elected to his third and fourth term terms as consul in 46 BC and 45 BC. Um, the last time was without a colleague, so not only was he dictator, but he was also consul. So he basically had the vast majority of the power within Rome. Um, so after he was pursuing uh, most of the Pompeian forces in Spain, um, a lot of the senators within the um, empire were, or not the empire, the republic were starting to conspire against him. Um, and it's and really within the aristocracy, they were getting scared that they were going to lose power and influence, so they started the plot against him. Um, so while Caesar was doing this, a key figure that comes in the Caesar's life, Gaius Octavius, uh, later known as Augustus Caesar, um, he was named his principal heir, leaving his vast estate and property to this um, young person. Um, Caesar also wrote that if Octavian died before Caesar did, Decimus Junius Brutus, who was also one of Caesar's lieutenants, would be the next heir in succession. And he also left a substantial gift to the citizens of Rome. Um, 
So through all of this, he was able to establish a new constitution. First, he wanted to try and suppress all armed resistance out in the provinces and thus bring you know, a sense of order back to the republic. And second, he wanted to create a strong central government in Rome that could kind of govern all these different areas. Um, so through all this, by the time he was able to defeat Pompey and these different campaigns in Asia Minor and Egypt, for the most part, there was a sense of stability um, under his dictatorship, but there was also instability because the Senate was really starting to turn against him and say, hmm, you know, maybe this guy is getting way too much power. We should try um, and get rid of him. So it wasn't like he was appointed dictator and immediately assassinated. He had been appointed dictator, I think, in 46 BC. So he had really been dictator for almost two years and was able to pass a couple of different reforms. Um, one, he built a uh, police force and then um, adjusted the tax system. Um, and he also wanted to, he had a ton of ambitions. He also wanted to wage uh, different campaigns against the Parthians and the Dacians. Um, so he really had a ton of ambitions. So even after all these different things, for the most part, despite getting all this power and kind of bringing stability back, the Senate still or, um, plotted against him. So on the idea, Ides of March, which is considered the 15th of March on the Roman calendar, uh, Caesar was due to appear at a session in the Senate, um, but obviously several senators had conspired to assassinate Caesar because they believed he had become too powerful. Um, Mark Anthony, uh, obviously one of Caesar's chief lieutenants, had vaguely learned of the plot the night before um, from a terrified liberator, which was, I believe, Senator Servius Casca. Um, fearing the worst, Mark Anthony tried to go and warn Caesar of this, um, but he was stopped and detained. Um, so according to the historian Plutarch, Caesar arrived to the Senate. Tilius Simber, who was a senator, presented him with a petition to recall his exiled brother. Um, and Caesar sort of waved him off because um, he didn't really want to deal with it. But Simber grabbed his shoulder and pulled down Caesar's tunic. Um, according to Plutarch, Caesar then cried to Simber, why this violence? And then uh, sort of reacting to the moment, Casca... Um, went and grabbed a, or Simmer went and grabbed the dagger and he kind of glanced it at the dictator's neck. Um, Caesar turned around and, you know, grabbed him by the arm. And according to Plutarch, he said in Latin, Casca, you villain, what are you doing? Um, Casca frightened, shouted, help brother in Greek. So it's interesting. They go from Latin to Greek very quickly. Um, and then within moments, the entire group of around 60 centers went and stabbed, um, Caesar to death, um, according to the historian Utopius, um, 60 men ultimately participate in the assassination, and he was stabbed around 23 times. Eventually, um, there was, according to historians of that time, a physician later established that only one wound, the second one to the chest, had actually been lethal. Um, but regardless, he had still been stabbed almost 23 times. Um and afterwards, according to Plutarch, after the assassination, Brutus um, was furious um, and eventually marched around the city with um, different senators who were still um, fond of Caesar. And, you know, um, went around shouting 
Well, actually, um, a lot of the conspirators went around the city like bragging that they had killed Caesar. Um, but then they realized that the most of the middle and lower classes um, were furious at this because Caesar was immensely popular and had been really popular even before he had begun his campaigns in Gaul, um, became enraged that, you know, a small group of aristocrats had killed Julius Caesar. Um, so eventually kind of different mobs formed the middle class and lower class citizens to hunt down these different senators who had, um, who had killed Caesar. Um, so a lot of the senators kind of locked themselves away and prepared for civil war. Um, the chief conspirators, uh, Brutus and Cassius, um, fled the city, um, which sparked another civil war. So we'll get into this um, in the next episode. But essentially, um, under Octavian, uh, Mark Anthony were faced off against Brutus um, and Cassius. So... Um, the second key event was there was a formation of the second triumvirate was formed, composing of Mark Anthony, Octavi Octavian, um, and Caesar's cavalry commander, Lepidus. Um, so eventually, with these two key events, um, the Roman Empire or the Roman Republic effectively ends, um, and the the power shifts from essentially a republic to an empire, which we're going to get into in the next episode. Uh, so to pretty much summarize this podcast, um, <laughs> we're going to summarize almost, what, 700 years of history, and I don't know how long this is going to take. But Rome really, you know, it wasn't necessarily built overnight, Um you know, it took years and years at first for Rome to even conquer most of the Italian peninsula before eventually expanding the fight different regional powers, specifically the Carthaginians and the Greek kingdoms. Um, and while in pretty vicious fighting over pretty much over a century, eventually Rome was able to destroy the Carthaginian Empire while also conquering the Greek kingdoms. All of these new conquests... Um, and ascension to become the regional power of the Mediterranean brought a lot of internal unrest and issues. Um, you know, the rise of these, the influx of, um, you know, different generals and politicians who sought to expand their power led to internal unrest and civil wars around 90 BC between um, Sulla and Gaius Marius. Um, after the, the civil war, um, there was a sense of stability returned, but it kind of showed how there wasn't there was a shift from you know fighting for in the defense of Rome um, to fighting for to conquer new territory. So that kind of sense of that shift from fighting to defend Rome against you know for example the Carthaginians and against the Greeks um, changes when these guys start to kind of expand the empire, um, into, you know, Asia and the Middle East and conquering Hispania and Gaul. So it's really around 60, you know, 60 BC where, um, these strong men emerge such as Pompey, such as Julius Caesar, um, such as Crassus emerge and form kind of a shadow organization to run or a shadow alliance to kind of run and influence, uh, the politics in Rome. 
Um, and through the military successes, for example, of Pompey the Great and Julius Caesar, they were able to gain a ton of political influence and change a lot of the different things that went on. For example, Crassus was actually able to gain influence through his money, but he also wasn't a great commander for because eventually he was killed in 53 BC when he tried to lead a futile campaign against the Parthian Empire. Um, and with Crassus's death, um, the alliance between Julius Caesar and Pompey eventually um, dissolved, and Pompey plotted with most of the Senate against him, leading to um, another civil war when Caesar refused to hand over his army and cross the Rubicon. Um, sparking a civil war that stretched pretty much from to both ends of the empire. Um, Caesar went and fought campaigns in Egypt and Spain and Asia to both get rid of his domestic opposition um, and also to conquer new territory. Um, with this, he was able to be appointed dictator, but he was eventually assassinated in 44 BC by um, disgruntled Roman senators who thought he had gained too much power. All of this um, led to another civil war where Julius Caesar um, had left um, his uh, possessions to Gaius uh, Octavius, uh, which was, I believe, his nephew, his grandnephew. Um, and he formed an alliance with Marcus Brutus and Lepidus, who are both um, Caesar lieutenants, and they were formed against Cassius and Brutus, who were the chief conspirators of his assassination. Um, so setting the stage for the next episode, we'll get into the second civil war between these two parties, specifically the Caesar loyalists um, and obviously the conspirators who stood for the Republic. Um, just to quickly summarize, because I don't want to dive too deeply in this because I'd like to get into the empire itself. Eventually, um, the Caesar loyalists triumph, but there's a falling out between Octavius um, and uh, Mark Anthony and the other people in the alliance. So eventually, um, there's yet even more infighting. But eventually, Gaius Octavius ascends as the first true emperor of Rome. And under him, um, the Roman Empire really flourishes and is able to expand very quickly and very rapidly. So for this next episode, we're going to get into the emperorship of Augustus, and then we're going to go to pretty much the history up until um, around 180 AD, which is after death of Jesus Christ. Um, and eventually we'll get into, um, you know, different cultural things, the empire itself, different strategies, and also the Pax Romana when the Roman Empire was at its greatest extent and when it was at its greatest height. Um, so thanks for listening to this episode. I'm always open to feedback, so feel free to um, send me a message, whether it's a voice message or um, a written message. Um, I'm always looking to feedback on how to improve um, this podcast, and I know this is only our second episode, so uh, each episode I'm hoping I can improve a little bit. Um, and hopefully over the next couple of weeks, I can get some guests lined up, um, and we can continue, uh, to do some cool stuff on history. Um, yeah. So thank you again for listening to this episode, uh, part one of our Roman series, the rise of Rome to Julius Caesar.